1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll be reading the whole chapter. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because your testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not like any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gius, so no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher in this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness Foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. 
Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Thank you. Well, let us come before our uh, Lord in a word of prayer as the kids toddle out to Kids Church and uh, think about this good passage in 1 Corinthians together. If you can see me behind the uh, camera up here, I'm over here. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time that we share together now. We thank you for giving us your word that guides us in life and uh, we pray that you'd help us to think carefully about it and, and put your words into action in our lives. Thank you for this time now, and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your outline there, you'll notice that the uh, he- heading and the topic of the talks there at the top, our unity in Christ. That's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. There's a saying that I've heard in the past that in union there is strength. Have you heard that saying before? In union there is strength. And is it true? It could be true for a a sporting team. It could be true for a netball team. Um, Thinking it might hopefully be true for the English soccer team as they play the final on Monday against the Italians. In union, there is strength. But it's also a slogan that's been used by trade unions in the past as well. Even today, if there's a strike or some other high-profile industrial industrial action, not reaction, industrial action, uh, we can see on the, the flags and the banners that are waved sometimes that saying, in union there is strength. When I was at university, uh, I first noticed even the cleaners could bargain a, a better pay packet and a better set of conditions when they got organised and united together rather than operating simply as individuals with no real unity to speak of. But what unites workers and what unites the church are different things, aren't they? Workers can be united with one another over a shared desire to get some better pay and better conditions. And I've also noticed that sometimes workers can be united over their dislike of particular conservative politicians. But what about us? What unites our community? What is our common unity in? A few years ago, I heard a comedian speaking with a a lady at a government office. And she was speaking about how the community worries about, about various problems. And the comedian made what I thought was a funny remark. He said, community? You mean all this time I've been living in a community? What are you talking about? There's there's no common unity here. Well, I thought it was funny anyway, so uh, (laughs) you'll have to uh, maybe wait for morning tea to hear the one about the rabbit in the fridge, so we'll see how we go. I guess uh, now the joke's my sense of humour. There we go. But what about church? What do we share common unity in? What unites us together? Is it simply that we live in the same geographical area? Is that what our common unity is in? Well, I hope not. But from your reaction this morning, I can see it's certainly not in our sense of humour. Thank you. Thank you, Lachlan. God's word today speaks to us about our unity. In fact, it, it speaks about the importance 
of preserving the unity that we have together in Christ. And so this morning, let's look together at Paul's encouragement uh, to the church at Corinth and draw on his words for our life together as God's church. Let's see if we can take some insight from 1 Corinthians for our benefit. We're at the section in the bulletin that says uh, context now. I just want to brief you on uh, where we're going because we're not doing the whole of 1 Corinthians, we're just doing chapter 1. In Acts chapter 18, as you saw last week, Paul was in Corinth in Greece. And in verse 9, we read that the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, telling him to keep speaking there since the Lord would protect him and the Lord had many people in that city. So we stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of the Lord. And it was there the church of Corinth developed. Paul didn't stay there for too long, though. He moved on to Jerusalem, then Antioch, and then on to Ephesus, where he stayed for about two and a half years. And it was in Ephesus that uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians. We see that in chapter 16, verse 8. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. This letter of 1 Corinthians grew out of some issues that were taking shape within the church... And Paul's already actually written to the Corinthians before. We see that in chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I've written in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so 1 Corinthians actually is sometimes referred to as Corinthians B because it's uh, the second letter that Paul wrote to that church. And this particular letter grows out of some of the issues that were brought to his attention from Chloe's people or Chloe's household. We see that in chapter 1, verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And later, at the end of the book in chapter 16, he refers to a delegation that comes to him. And he lists the names Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus as a delegation from the church who brings him news from the Corinthians and probably a letter from them. And he refers to that letter throughout the book, the the letter from the Corinthians to Paul in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. And so there's this correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians. But today we're we're not going to be looking at all those issues Um, from chapter 7 onwards. We'll be dealing with chapter 1. And we get to benefit from his words to the church because this is also God's word to, to us, isn't it? Well, Paul begins by encouraging them to remember who they were in Christ and what they had in Christ. And that's really the first point for us as well, isn't it? For us to keep remembering who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. In 1 1 to 9, Paul reminds the Corinthians of a few important points. The first one is who he is. He says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, which means he comes officially as a delegate from King Jesus. It was by God's will that he had that role. And so from the very get-go, this has got a tone of seriousness to it, that they're, they're to take his authority seriously. He's coming from God with a message. And he also speaks about who he's with him from the start as well. It's his brother Sosthenes. Not a great deal is told to us about this man, and so we take it that this is the same Sosthenes, the former 
ruler of the synagogue in chapter, Acts chapter 18, who was sadly physically assaulted in the presence of Gallio, the proconsul, and he's simply described as Paul's brother. Paul then moves on to start to remind the Corinthians about who they are. In verse 2 he says, the church of, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. This word here for the church is the assembly word or the gathering word. And these are the ones who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart as something special. Like uh, when Helen had her wedding recently, I, I had a, a special suit set aside. I didn't, didn't just wear my board shorts that day. I had a, there was something s- special set aside and God's people are, are set aside as special as well. And they've been set apart to be, uh, by God's power, to be also God's holy people. So on the one hand, they are sanctified and set aside. And on the other hand, the challenge is to live up to that calling to be holy. And that's true of all people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Their status is those who are sanctified and yet called to be holy. We see that in verse 2b, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul continues by reminding them what they have in Christ. In verse 5 he says, In him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. In verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. In verse 8, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we see that the Corinthians have been enriched. They're enriched in their speech and knowledge. They're not lacking in spiritual gifts. And they're given the assurance that God will keep them firm to the end. Uh, The word about keeping them firm to the end could be also translated God will confirm them or strengthen them to the end. And it's the idea that God's going to put a a solid foundation under them, put a solid floor under them. They're blameless now since they're right with God, since they're in Christ, and God will continue to hold them to be blameless to the end. That's the assurance they're given. And so whilst they weren't uh, lacking in speech or knowledge and spiritual gifts, it's interesting even at the start here though, Paul notes that he doesn't, well, he doesn't know it actually, he doesn't refer to their love. And that's something that uh, is going to be coming up later in this letter, something that they could grow in Christian maturity in. Elsewhere, Christians are reminded that if they're in Christ, they're not lacking in any spiritual blessing. That's what the, the Corinthians have been told, and that's true of other Christians as well. If we're in Christ, we experience God's grace, redemption, forgiveness of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit and we belong to his church. It's a very uh, special status that we have, it's a special relationship we enjoy as God's people and that's what we're reminded of in verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son the Lord Jesus Christ and that word fellowship could also be called partnership. 
The Corinthians have moved broadly from a pagan background where they didn't know God to a new life where they enjoy a living relationship with God. They enjoy a fellowship with God, partnership with God, God who would keep them to the end. And at this point, we think about the application of of, uh, what we have in Christ, that, that special relationship that we each have with God as well. And whether we really value that relationship with God, that's, that's the challenge for us. As a younger man, uh, I found life somewhat puzzling uh, until I came to a clearer faith in Christ and, and started to understand God's grace. When I started to grapple with his favour to me in Christ, who died for my sins, I started to understand Uh, who I was more in life, that I was part of God's family now and that I could look forward to being with the Lord at the end. And it was was terrific for me. I was in about year nine and I felt like I started to have a proper perspective on life. And I wanted other people also to see life in that clear perspective as well. And I still do, actually. But I must say, over time, it's... Uh, the fact is that we, we still live with our sinful nature, don't we? And there are times when we, we're not always appreciative, as we could be, of this new relationship with God that we enjoy. Has that ever been a challenge for you? Are you always as appreciative of the relationship you've got with the Lord as, you, as the same way that you were when you started out? Well, as we read this letter today, we see that Paul seems to be filled with joy and excitement as he reminds the uh, Corinthians of who they are in Christ, this new life that they've got, this new relationship with God that they, they now have in their hands. And we can be ref- refreshed as we remember once again the wonderful fellowship that we have with the Lord and, and the life that we have as God's people as well. There might be times when we take that relationship with gra- for granted, but we're called to be grateful for God's grace to us in giving us life through Christ. And so that's the first application point. Let's be grateful for this fellowship that we do enjoy with the Lord. Let's remember that gift that we have and be grateful for that. Well, the second point in this sermon is about our call to maintain unity in the gospel. In verses 10 through to 17... Paul kicks off now a new topic, and it's about divisions within the church. The problem of people boasting about their their relative wisdom in following a particular leader. Paul begins to deal with this issue here in chapter 1, but he continues this topic through to chapter 4. And he challenges the Corinthians uh, to a better way of life in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul shows that he's aware of a a party spirit that seems to be arising within that church. In verse 12, we find that some are saying they follow Paul, some Apollos, some Kephas, which is a reference to the Apostle Peter. And then there's a group who just says they're the Christ party. Although this church seems to have had some things going for it, which we saw in verses 2 to 9, 
on the other hand, there's, there's room for them to grow in Christian maturity and away from worldly wisdom. Boasting about who they were following wasn't spiritual. This point uh, picked up again in chapter 3 by Paul where he says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual but as worldly, for since there's jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you, acting, are you not acting like mere men? It's not spiritual to boast about following a particular leader, to try to pull rank over the next Christian brother or sister, someone boasting about which leader seemed to be the one who baptised them, as if that was the important thing and not so much who they're baptised into. Well, that's not spiritual, according to Paul. That's just worldly. And he reminds them it's, it's ridiculous and unspiritual to reason in that way. If you have a look at verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? And further, he takes them back to the gospel. He takes them back to what the essence of Christianity is about and reminds them about the message and the mission in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Allegiance to a particular leader was missing the point that Jesus is the one that we're following. And Paul brings them back to the heart of that message, which is about Christ crucified. So how did things get to this point for them? How could this negative one-upmanship in spiritual things gain a foothold? Well, Paul began the church, but others, such as Apollos, also served there. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I planted the seed... Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And it seems that people have uh, made comparisons between Paul and other Christian leaders, and they've organised themselves into various factions, possibly in an attempt to uh, try to be a bit more spiritual than the next person. But Paul knows that that kind of approach is more akin to the worldly wisdom of what they might have seen in the world around them. Apparently in Corinth, as a, as a trading port, it would get visiting speakers and teachers. People would turn up, the whole town might turn up to listen to one of these uh, eloquent speakers and hear what they had to say. And they, they discuss what that, that speaker had to say. And sometimes the, the followers also argued over who was the better teacher, who was the greatest... And for the church to quarrel over who they followed as their favourite teacher, Paul, Apollos or Cephas, was akin to a worldly way of life that didn't reflect their unity in Jesus. Well, how can we apply Paul's challenge to that church, to our church? It's probably pretty normal to compare the way that various preachers preach, isn't it? Uh, within our church, Scott, Benjamin and I are different and we'll preach from the, the same Bible but we'll preach in a different way and it's going to be pretty obvious that we, we do things differently. But it would still be a mistake within our church to build alliances 
and factions around a particular preacher or a particular elder or anyone else. Especially because I'd probably come last in that game and I don't like losing. <laughs> no, Peter, that's not the reason. The reason we ought not build divisions, alliances and factions is that's an ungodly way to live as God's church. That would be a worldly approach to life in God's church, wouldn't it? And the message from the word today is that we ought not take that worldly path, but instead follow Jesus alone and rise to the challenge of verse 10 that we agree with one another, that there's no divisions among us and that we're united in thought and in our minds with Jesus at the centre. Jesus is our Lord, isn't he? He wasn't divided up. Scott wasn't crucified for you. And you weren't baptised into the name of Benjamin or Peter. So as we live out our calling as God's people within this church, let's keep making Jesus the centre and maintain our unity of mind in him. Maintain, our, maintain rather, the good news that salvation's found in Christ alone, that we receive it through faith alone. And it's to the glory of God alone. So let's major on Christ who unites us and find our common ground with each other in him. There's the challenge for us. Well, the third point in this sermon is that God's wisdom leads to our salvation. God's wisdom, we see, is quite different from the world's in verse 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's provided us a way for us to get to know him. He can't be found by philosophy or looking for a miraculous science. We can't make up the God who's there and we can't hunt around and investigate to try and find him. He's provided the way in which he's uh, allowed himself to be known. And he's provided that way as the message of the cross that Jesus Jesus died and rose again for sinners. And those who believe that, it's 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 a powerful message, but for those who reject it, it's foolishness. And the fact that we enjoy salvation doesn't grow out of Uh, our wisdom, how smart and clever we are to think that we've found God. Like how people might have boasted about how they were uh, following the right or best public speaker. They they thought themselves pretty clever. Uh, The Bible reveals here that our our finding of God grows out of his grace. Uh, The Bible teaches us that people by nature are busy uh, running from God hiding from God, suppressing the knowledge of the truth. In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they heard the sound of the Lord coming, uh, they hid from God. Uh, 
in John's Gospel, people don't want to come into the light. They, they, they fear their deeds will be seen. And in Romans chapter 1, people are smothering the knowledge of God. The joke is, can a, uh, a thief find a policeman? Can a thief who's walking out of somebody's house with a TV find a policeman? Well, I suppose theoretically he could, but the fact is he's on the run from the policeman and he doesn't want to find the policeman. And that's a picture of what humanity is a bit like. People know by nature there's a God, but they're on the run from God. And it's only after God grants repentance that people find God. And that's what we see here in verses 26 to 31. That salvation grows out of God's work in people's lives. As God reveals the significance of the message of the cross to people, people come to know him. In fact, Paul speaks a bit more about this in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And so Paul points out that boasting about spiritual things is out of place since God's the one who enlightens us and given us life. Even these people... Uh, are just recipients of grace as we see in verse 28 God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness holiness and redemption therefore as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It's not so much that they were so wise that they found God, but that God was gracious and he saved them. And this helps us too, doesn't it? It helps us because we can remember that salvation gets traced back to God who saves. We can have our confidence that God can and does save people. And his activity and his initiative to save people puts our efforts into their right perspective as well. People come to salvation. They come to enjoy life with God as they hear the good news about Jesus and put their faith in him. But it's because of God's work in their life that they do come to faith, that God uh, opens blind eyes. And so we can share the good news But the glory goes to God for changing hearts as he brings people new life. And consequently, our role in Christ's mission is about praying, praying for people's salvation, praying that God would change hearts, open blind eyes, and to share the message that's been entrusted to us and to be faithful in sharing the word that's been handed down. We're not at liberty to change the message. We've got to pass on what's been given to us in the word. And after that, we trust God with the results to save people. Now, I've noticed that some Christians sometimes try to orchestrate people getting converted as they sometimes have their meetings with upbeat music as they come into the gathering. And then even as serious and hushed words are spoken by the preacher, sometimes there's somebody in the background playing there with a guitar, a nice little instrumental And it can all look a little bit cultish, I think, at times, as people are there having their emotions swayed, trying to tweak the music and the lighting. 
as if that's going to be the key to get people over the line. If only you could have a bit more mood lighting. If only that light could be dimmed as I speak right now. Is that the thing that's going to do the trick to bring someone salvation? Well, the word reminds us today in verse 30, it's because of him, and that's a reference to God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God. God's the one who gives life. We're responsible to pray for people and to share the good news. But we trust God with the results of salvation, people's salvation. I can't produce life in anyone and neither can you. That's God's work. And salvation is by God's grace from first to last. Well, we're reminded that it's because of God that we're in Christ Jesus as well. We're people who've been sanctified. We're set apart as God's special people. And our calling is to live up to that as well, to work at being holy people as well, being different from the world. We enjoy the privilege of fellowship with God, don't we? That's something which, I mean, if you don't take anything else away from this sermon, let's just remember, isn't it a blessing to enjoy fellowship with the living and true God? That's something special and something we shouldn't become complacent about over time or ungrateful about, but we should remember it's a gift. We've seen that the Corinthians took a worldly approach to spiritual wisdom, dividing into factions, following various Christian leaders. But Paul reminds them about the essence of Christianity, and that's Jesus. They're to be united in the powerful gospel message which leads to salvation for those who believe it. And our call also is to maintain unity, maintain the unity that each of us has in Christ together. That's what unites us together. And finally, we've seen that God's the one who provides the way for people to come to know him. Despite the fact that some people think the message of the cross is foolishness, that's God's powerful message for salvation. And as people hear about that message of the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf, they come to uh, a way to know, know God and the privilege of a a new life with the Lord as well. It's not because of their relative cleverness or wisdom, not because they were busy looking for God, but because God, by his grace, uh, changed their hearts so they'd want to come to know him. And our responsibility is to continue to pray and to share the good news and trust God that he'll, he'll do what's right in his wisdom to save. Now, I think it is true that in union there is strength, but our union is in Christ. We're united to Jesus through faith and we're united to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So may God strengthen us in that unity that we share together. Let us close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we do give you thanks for who we are in Christ and what we have. Uh, We thank you that we have fellowship with you and that we enjoy a living relationship with you as our God. And we thank you for the comfort of knowing you uh, as our Father in heaven and Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep Jesus at the centre of our lives and maintain our unity in him. Lord, we give you thanks for providing that way for us to come to know you. We give you thanks that our salvation 
is by your grace from first to last and that you've been kind to us and it's because of you that we're in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to be wise in the way that we live. Help us not to be worldly. Instead, Lord, help us to be those who uh, take heed to this challenge that the Corinthians heard and put it into practice in our situation today. Help us to continue to be united in Christ and and not uh, find ourselves in factions. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.